Was it the people you went with and the atmosphere surrounding the show? Or maybe it was the rare opportunity to see a legend, someone who was either on the verge of retiring or you just knew this is a once-in-a-lifetime ticket and I need to go. For me, the, the easy answer is seeing Garth Brooks in Charlotte in October of 1993. I can take you back to Sonny's Real Pit Barbecue just outside of Charlotte, and I can show you where we sat before we went, before we had dinner, before we went over to the old Charlotte Coliseum uh, to see Garth Brooks. And as a full confession, um, I was distraught because I could not find the blocked two-tone shirt that Garth Brooks wore that was really popular. We had like the alternating colors like black, white, black, white, however that was. I couldn't find one of those, but I did rock a sweet bolo tie. <laughs> and I, I tried to find all excuses in the world to wear that bolo tie. It was a fake gold arrowhead with a buffalo nickel. It was awesome. All of that aside, what made the show so great and what makes it still so memorable for me, even at, the, even at nine years old, was an awareness of the power Garth Brooks exerted over the entire crowd. Everybody came to see this one man do this one thing, and he did it better than anybody I've ever seen in concert since then. From the moment, I believe he shot up out of the stage, I believe that was his entrance, or they raised a piano very slowly and he was playing one of his songs on the piano. But from the moment he walked or shot or was raised onto the stage until he walked off the final time, he held almost 20,000 people in the palm of his hand. And whatever Garth Brooks asked us to do, we did as one, without question, without hesitation. But here's the reality. When I left the concert, all of that power that Garth Brooks had exerted over my life in a moment was gone. Now, we talked about all the fun we had had, and I went back to school and probably told lies about how close I was or whatever. But the power that we felt in that moment, the power that Garth Brooks had over us collectively, over the weeks and the months and the years that have gone by, all of that power has faded. I live my life no differently because I went and saw Garth Brooks in concert, even though I experienced his power in the moment. So last week, when we were in Mark's gospel, we saw Jesus, we heard Jesus announce that the kingdom of God was and is at hand. And in today's text, Mark is going to show us the first glimpse of the divine power of Jesus and his kingdom over demons, fever, leprosy, and a host of other illnesses that are unnamed but afflicting those in Galilee and the surrounding area. And this is, we talked about in our first Sunday, that the banner that kind of hangs over Mark, Mark wants everyone who reads his gospel to understand discipleship and the cost associated. And so when we read these four, it's going to be kind of four mini sermons packed into one sermon. So we're going to try to move quickly so we're not here until 7.30. But the thing with watching Jesus exert his power over things that only God can exert power over is that as disciples, it should not create in us a longing for power that is God's alone. What it should do is create in us an awareness of if I'm living submitted to that power, how does my life need to change? 
And that's going to be the challenge as we unpack these four kind of mini episodes from the life of Jesus. And it's going to fall out that we're going to get two challenges and two encouragements from each of these stories that I hope will strengthen our faith in our all-powerful, risen, and reigning King. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful. We are grateful that you just didn't use your power as almost a sideshow, but you used your power to display the inbreaking reign of God's rule in the world because you were God in the flesh. Not only that, but when you rose and you ascended to the right hand of the Father, you did not leave us powerless. But you sent the Spirit to give us the power to put our sin to death and to live for righteousness and to be obedient. And so the power that we have in the Spirit is not a power that rivals yours as God, but it's a power that transforms us as your disciples. So, Father, would we live aware of the power that's at work within us? Will we live joyful, submitted lives to your rule and to your reign until you return or call us home? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read very quickly through these verses and then get back into unpacking them. Actually, I'm going to do it a section at a time. The first section we're going to cover is Mark 1, 21 through 28. This is what Mark writes. And they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. With his first disciples now following him, Jesus, as a guest teacher, is invited into the synagogue at Capernaum to teach. Now, this was not abnormal in first century Jewish life. If there was a traveling teacher and you knew he was nearby, you would invite him in to share parts of the law and then give interpretation and understanding for how the law fit with how you were to live in that moment, in that day, as one of God's people. And so Jesus would have taught from the Old Testament because the New Testament didn't exist yet. And so as he begins to teach and explain the, New Te the Old Testament to those seated in the synagogue, it doesn't take them long to begin to realize this guy doesn't teach the same way we're used to hearing the Scriptures taught. There's an authority and a power behind his words that as well as our scribes have studied to know and understand the law of God and how to apply it to our lives, there's something vastly different about who we're dealing with. And it wasn't only the hearers in physical form, in human form, who heard and began to realize there was a different power and teaching taking place. Somewhere within the midst of that synagogue, there was a demon-possessed man. And as Jesus began to teach and as the authority of his words were as his words of authority were spoken, immediately from somewhere in this crowd of people, a demon-possessed man gets up and makes his way in front of Jesus. And there is a confrontation, and this is what Mark says in Mark 1, 23 and 24. 
And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, the Holy One of God is added in there, depending on your translation, with a hyphen, almost like it's a thrown-in descriptor of who Jesus is. But what the Holy One of God was, was a designation that would have instantly brought to mind those in the synagogue. It would have been something that brought to their minds all of the instances where God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, self-identified as the Holy One of Israel around the moments when He was going to act in delivering his people. You can see this in 2 Kings 19.22, in Psalm 71.22, in Psalm 78.41, Isaiah 29.19, Isaiah 43.14, Jeremiah 50.29, and Jeremiah 51.5. So when the demons say who you are, the Holy One of God, Jesus has now been identified as divine by the demonic even though the disciples are still dumb to the fact of who Jesus really is. So how many of you have read this in the past, and when you read this confession that Jesus is the Holy One of God, how many of you thought this was some sort of humble or almost worshipful acknowledgement of who Jesus is? I mean, that's how I always read it, was like they were at least aware enough to offer like a genuine heartfelt like, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. However, this is not the case. The NIV Study Bible provides clarity on why they would identify Jesus as the Holy One of God when they say in their study notes, in the manner of ancient exorcists who sought to use the name of their spiritual opponents to control them, so the demon attempts to use that knowledge to control Jesus. This is not just a passive acknowledgement of who Jesus is. The demonic possessor of this man's body is trying to use the name of Jesus to exert control over him. This is like me going up to the rock and challenging the rock to a fist fight and then going, I know who you are, old rock, Dwayne Johnson. That ain't doing me a lick of good. I, he is going to kill me. Like it, I, don't, I can address him however. It's not going to change the balance of power. So it is when the demon confesses that Jesus is the Holy One of God. It is a futile attempt to control and exert influence over Jesus. Jesus, without even the hint of a challenge or even breaking a sweat, simply rebukes and drives the demon out. And he brings healing to the man. And this is significant because part of what Jesus is doing as we see him exercise power in these four many stories, as the NIV Study Bible says, Jesus expelling the impure spirit is integral to his restoring the image of God to humanity. And so it's not just exerting power for power's sake. It's power leveraged to restore the image of God in the people of God who've had that image marred and wrecked by sin. Never, when we read of Jesus exerting his power, is it merely to flex. It is always Jesus exerting his power to leverage it and help those who otherwise could not help themselves. 
Jesus models then for us how we as disciples are to use the power in our families and in our jobs and in our positions in the community. He gives us a clue into understanding that we are never to leverage all of our power primarily for ourselves. We are always to seek how we can leverage that power to help others. That's what a disciple does. And immediately, the crowd responds with increased fervor and awe as the authority with which Jesus taught was now in some sense validated by his display of power over the demonic. And here we come to the end of our first mini-sermon inside the sermon. It's where we find the first of what is going to be two challenges for us. And this is the challenge. It is possible to be biblically faithful, theologically accurate, and gather weekly with a body of believers and still have gaping blind spots in your church gathered that allow Satan and his minions to feel unchallenged and free to wreak havoc in the lives of people. Notice, the demonic man was in the synagogue and in no way felt threatened until Jesus showed up and started teaching. In a law-centered synagogue, the demon felt right at home and unchallenged. And the same is true for us. We only have to study our own history as Southern Baptists to understand, or you could study the Presbyterian Church, the PCA Church. In studying the history of both, you can see where both had right biblical sound theology. They gathered weekly and they had gaping blind spots that allowed racism and Jim Crow to be baptized and authorized as okay in the life of the church. You can even study the great writers and the great theologians who have impacted church history and what you can't escape is that as great as they were, they still have blind spots. You can read the anti-Semitism of Martin Luther. And you have to wrestle with the truth that Jonathan Edwards owned slaves. You have to wrestle with the fact that George Whitfield not only owned slaves, but tried to promote the institution of slavery throughout the American South. And we are not immune to that either individually or corporately. We can develop blind spots where we allow Satan to feel at home in our churches. And while we think we are doing faithful ministry, there are those among us who can be living with oppression and sin issues that we allow to flourish because of our own unique blind spots. And it's not because we're not trying, but it is because, and I'm not excusing anything that happened with people in the past. I'm just saying, as I understand it, it's possible because we are finite, simple human beings trying to talk accurately and coherently about an infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful God. We will make mistakes. Our, our hope is in being willing to recognize, see those mistakes, own those blind spots, confess, <coughs> repent, and seek to strengthen our own stance on the things that matter so that we would not create an environment where Satan felt welcome. Paul warned Timothy to keep his life and doctrine closely under watch. And it is the same 
for us, we must always be willing to examine what we believe and in humility asking others to help us see the blind spots we are missing where we can unintentionally allow the enemy of our souls to set up shop and steal and kill and destroy. So that's the first warning of these kind of four mini-sermons. And then this is what happens next in verses uh, 29 through 34. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus leaves the synagogue and goes to Simon and Andrew's home for a traditional Sabbath meal. And immediately upon arrival, and if you read all of Mark, you see that immediately is one of his favorite words to use. Mark writes with pace and urgency. So immediately when he comes through the door, they tell Jesus, hey, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, who's been sick and bedridden with fever, needs your help. I don't know about you, but if I'm writing to show the overwhelming power of Jesus, I don't write about someone having a fever, right? It's like, okay, cool. Well, there was a guy that just was healed of demon possession, and then you hit me with fever next? Like, take a couple of Tylenol and call, you know, give it a couple hours. You'll be better. But here's the reality of fever being present in the life of God's people in Israel. In the Old Testament, Fever was one of a handful of illnesses that served as a means of punishment or judgment for when God's people had broken covenant with him. You can go read Leviticus 26, 14 through 16, where it is said that among those diseases that marks God's punishment or judgment on his people is fever. Jesus is going to heal this fever in Peter's mother-in-law because he has come to restore the broken covenant that the nation of Israel could not keep, and he's going to institute a new covenant. And so fever isn't just a throwaway disease that Mark couldn't find anything else to write about from around that time. Mark is writing, and he includes Peter's mother-in-law having a fever because he wants to see not only in casting out the demon is Jesus working to restore the image of God, but Jesus is also working to institute and fulfill both the old and then institute the new covenant. And so Jesus goes quickly to her bedside and full of power and compassion, Mark says he took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. This is a free encouragement or challenge, however you want to hear this tonight. This is not one that's in here, but we're going to touch on it just briefly. When Peter's mother-in-law is healed, her healing is a means of being freed to serve. Anytime we experience God's work in our life, God's healing touch in our life, we are always healed as a means to begin to serve. We are never primarily healed to make our healing about ourselves. Notice what Peter's mother-in-law doesn't do. She doesn't call everyone in the house around and say, hey, come listen to what Jesus just did for me. She begins to serve. And what does her serving do? Her serving opens the door for droves of people to be able to get to Jesus and be healed. 
Her serving has an immediate impact on the myriad of people who are going to come to her door. That's what service, that's what experiencing the healing touch of Jesus in our life should stir us to in service. is not to make the story of Jesus healing about us, but to figure out how we can then serve Jesus to allow as many people as possible to hear and know the good news about who Jesus is. So Peter's mother-in-law immediately begins to serve And as the sun sinks below the horizon, all the Sabbath regulations regarding work and people walking and moving are lifted. And the people in the surrounding area begin to arrive in large numbers to have Jesus heal their family members, their friends, their loved ones of all kinds of sickness, disease, and demon possession. And this section ends with Jesus doing something that he did at the end of casting out the demon in the previous section. Jesus rebukes the demons about making him known. Now, why is this? I mean, if Jesus was around now, we would say, hey, man, don't you know the only bad press is no press? Like, it doesn't matter if your enemies are talking about you. At least you're in the news cycle. Like, if more of your enemies will talk about you, you can stay in the news cycle longer. So why does Jesus be like, look, don't go tell anyone who I am. Don't give any hint of you knowing exactly who I am. Why is that? The NIV Study Bible, again, provides such great clarity on this when it says, Because the demons know who he is, Jesus silences them because their confession would mislead the people. The true nature of his divine sonship and power could not be properly understood apart from his obedient death on the cross. The time will come for such public confessions, but not yet. I want you to remember this last sentence. The time will come for such public confessions, but not yet. Hold on to that until we get to the very end. That's a long time to hold on to that, but just remember. So Jesus rebukes them because there would be mass confusion about who he was and what he was really doing, and he could not be understood rightly apart from his obedient death on the cross. You cannot understand Jesus without the cross. It was true when he was on earth doing his ministry, and it's true for us now. You cannot make a sense of Jesus' life and his ministry and his power unless you understand him through the lens of the cross. And as we watch Jesus with Peter's mother-in-law and the myriad of people who show up after sunset, we find our first encouragement from the text. What reassurance can we draw from this moment in Jesus' ministry? Notice the gentleness of Jesus and his compassion on those who are suffering the effects of living in a world broken by sin where sickness, chronic illness, and demon possession are prevalent. There is no mention of Jesus berating the crowd for interrupting his personal time. Jesus doesn't lecture them on their need to have more faith. He isn't exasperated, but patiently he listens. He heals And he restores. And that same invitation is open to us today. As we live on this side of the cross, as those redeemed by Jesus, we have nothing to fear in coming to him to pour out our lives and our pain and our sickness and our worries and our joys. And on and on the list goes. Because this is what is true for us. Jesus loves us. And he desires to be with us. But we must not 
try to make ourselves better before we come to Jesus. We must heed the words of the classic hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy, written by Joseph Hart, which says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. So when we read of Jesus taking the time to touch the hand of Peter's mother-in-law, to raise her up, when we read of Jesus working long hours after he's taught, he's human, he gets tired. This is not him just operating on divine autopilot. He is feeling the stress and the exertion of his day so far. He has been on the move, teaching and healing and doing the things that God in the flesh can do, but he's still God in the flesh. But at no point does he hit a wall where he says, all right, I've had enough. No point does he feel encroached on. He just simply works as long as he can, and then in faith he goes and he lays down and he sleeps. And that same invitation is open to us today. But we've got to go. And we've got to go well before we're better. And then this is the third episode of these kind of four mini-sermons. Uh, Mark 1, 35 through 39, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next town, so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. After a long evening of ministering to and healing the crowd at Simon Peter's house, Jesus steals away in the pre-dawn hours for some time in prayer and communion with the Father. As the rest of the house comes to life the next morning, it doesn't take people long to realize Jesus is missing. When you've seen that overt display of divine power, you're waking up the next morning excited to see what he's going to do next. So everybody starts to look, and they're like, wait, what? Where is this guy? Like somebody, get him back in here. Does he not know the work that needs to be done? And so out everyone goes, combing the city, trying to find, where is he? Where is he going? And he must not have been too far away because it doesn't say it took him forever to find him. But when they find him, they have one goal in mind, and that is for him to continue his ministry and to build a following. Peter and the others can see the needs of those who have come to Jesus for healing. But what they can't see is the need for Jesus to be in prayer. It seems to them that the best course of action for Jesus is to strike while the ministry iron is hot. After all, he can always pray and commune with God some other time, right? I mean, this is your moment. Capitalize on what you're doing. Leave all of that spiritual, leave all that prayer and that time with the Father. Push it off because there's work to be done now. But how does Jesus respond to his disciples? He said, yeah, let's, let's go back in and let's really get this thing going. He says, you're right. Let's go on to the next town so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus came out to spend time with the Father. But he also came out so that when they would find him, he could take them away from where they thought Jesus' most pressing need for ministry was. And Jesus could show them that the real pressing need for ministry is everywhere. Your family and your friends may benefit from my ministry in your hometown, but there is a need all around us. Now let's keep going. 
far from going back to where they were, he says, we're just going to keep moving then. And so off they go. As they make their way through Galilee, Jesus teaches in synagogues and casts out demons. And as Jesus teaches and heals in the surrounding region, he is beginning to fulfill the prophecy of the year of the Lord's favor, which is found in what book? Right, Isaiah. Most of you haven't been here the whole three weeks. Mark loves to reference or allude to the book of Isaiah. Mark understands most of Jesus' ministry through Isaiah's desire to see the Messiah lead the people of God in a new exodus. And so when Jesus begins to do this teaching and healing ministry as he kicks off his tour around Galilee, he is fulfilling this from Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And in Jesus withdrawing to pray and spend time with the Father, we have our second challenge before us as we seek to live as faithful disciples of Jesus today. And the challenge is this. Will we become so enamored with doing ministry and become so determined to see our ministry succeed no matter the cost, that we will forego time alone with the Father. And perhaps if you're not in ministry, perhaps another way to say this is, would you become so enamored with your family arriving at whatever your definition of a healthy family is, that you would forego time alone with the Father? Or however it fits into your life. It is only when we spend time with the Father that we can have our hearts and minds renewed, our strength renewed, where we can be reminded of what is true for us in the gospel. Jesus has taught. Jesus has healed. Jesus needs now to be with the Father. And that same rhythm and pattern should mark our lives. We're in church on a Sunday. We're in small groups through the week. We're meeting with people to encourage them in the faith or encourage them to consider the claims of Jesus but wrapped up in all that there has to be consistent scheduled time to withdraw and be with the father to resist the urge to think that we are only being beneficial to the kingdom when we're doing and get a whole lot more comfortable with understanding we are also being more beneficial to the kingdom when we are taking moments to just be in the presence of God only when we spend time with the Father, and it has to be intentional and unhurried time where possible, that we can gain understanding on when to continue in a ministry and when to leave a ministry for another opportunity to see the gospel advance. As a disciple of Jesus, there is no substitute for time with the Father. That means there is no substitute for finding time to be alone without worship music playing, without podcast playing, maybe even, maybe you got your Bible open, but it's the Bible, it's you, and it's the Father. There can be no substitute if we're going to be healthy disciples who follow after Jesus with all we have for the sake of seeing the kingdom advance. 
we cannot and we will not be excused on the last day for continually leaning on the excuse of being busy as a means to shield ourselves from unhurried time enjoying the Father. Busyness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Busyness robs you of the ability to produce or see the fruit of the Spirit produced in your life. And if we think at the end of our life that somehow Jesus is just going to be okay with how busy we kept ourselves so that we never had time for communing with him and enjoying him and enjoying the Father, we're going to be mistaken. This is not to call your salvation into question. What it is meant to do is jar our minds and our hearts to think, why is it so easy to push time alone with the Father to the back of the line? Duke Rivard tweeted earlier this week. I think this is a fitting summation to this little section. You might have to underschedule your life to obey Jesus. You might have to underschedule your life to obey Jesus. Unhurried time with the Father is a must, but it is a challenge. When we compare how busy we can make ourselves with each other as a badge of pride and honor. That's a challenge, but it's what we've got to do if we want to be faithful. Let's get into the last section four tonight. It says this in Mark 1, 40 through 45. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter." Somewhere along the way, perhaps it would have more than likely been on a road leading into a town or an area around Galilee. Jesus is approached by a leper. We know he wouldn't have been in the city because lepers were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean and they weren't allowed inside the walls of the city or the confines of the town because if someone ceremonially unclean was in, it caused everyone to be impure. And it impeded their ability to worship God without impurity in the temple. And so this man has lived for an indefinite amount of time from what Mark tells us, socially, physically, and spiritually isolated since he was found with the disease. The NIV Study Bible says, Leprosy sufferers were regarded as living corpses and condemned to lonely isolation from the community. His life hadn't been easy and would continue to be a struggle where he would be dependent on the charity of others to survive unless the disease could be healed. And so kneeling down before Jesus, he says, if you will, you can make me clean. If you're following along in the ESV, that says Jesus moved with pity. That's actually a softening of the translation how that actually reads and the most the most likely reading of moved with pity is that jesus was actually irritated 
that Jesus was irritated with the man for coming to him after all of the news of who Jesus was and what he was doing was spreading. This man comes and says, if you will. And it irritates Jesus, perhaps, because it calls into question not only Jesus, but God the Father's merciful character. Nevertheless, Jesus, from his deep compassion and care, reaches out a hand and heals the man. Jesus' healing touch and mercy overstepped the concerns for strict for the strict ritual purity of the religious, and it transcends the man's questioning. As the NIV Study Bible says again, it underlines Jesus' authority, power, and intention to bring cleansing to God's people. And Jesus then sends the man away so he can present himself to the priest and be rehabilitated socially. And in sending him away to the priest to make the offering that Moses commanded, Jesus is testifying in part to the Jerusalem priesthood that he does respect the law. And he will say as much in the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so he heals a man and sends him to make the right offering as a means of showing his own care for and respect of the law. Even though Jesus himself has just broken purity regulations by touching the man. What Jesus got in extending his hand to touch and heal the man was he understood the spirit of the law regarding purity regulations and he understood that there was something more profound at work than just simply obeying the letter of the law the letter of the law would say you don't touch him whatever the case may be he's on his own until God heals him but when God in the flesh shows up God can heal him and God can touch him and not take on any uncleanness himself as news of the healing of the lepers spreads, it becomes impossible for Jesus to do ministry in the cities and towns of Galilee. So he withdraws to desolate places where the people continue to come to him. Now this seems on uh, an initial reading like, man, these people are devoted to Jesus because he's out in the desolate places. He's out on somewhere in the far reaches of Bergal. And the people are still going out to him. And it seems like, man, these people get it, right? This is what the ESV Study Bible says regarding Mark's continual pointing out of the crowd's fascination with Jesus' ability to perform miracles. It's what the Study Bible notes from the ESV say. Mark often, Mark often emphasizes how the crowd's excessive attention to Jesus' miracles is a frequent problem, causing the crowds to miss the true purpose of his ministry. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And over and over and over again in Mark, this same scene will be repeated, where Mark will use the crowd to show very clearly the dividing line between a bystander and a disciple. And it also shows that in the life of the church, the primary role of the church in gathering is to preach the kingdom of God. To preach, repent, and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And from that flows all of the social implications for how the gospel affects our life. Jesus is doing both. 
Jesus is not just a, well, I'm just going to preach the gospel. Jesus is not only preaching the gospel, repent and believe. Jesus is also living out the full implications of the gospel. But there will always be those who are fascinated with the power of Jesus, but will always balk at the message of Jesus. We have to make sure that we are tying the power of Jesus seen on display in our lives or in the lives of others to the message of Jesus, which is repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Not come see so that you can be healed of a temporary issue, but come see so that then you would hear about the forgiveness that could be yours in Christ. And we're going to end with our last encouragement, and it comes from Jesus' merciful touch of the leper. I don't know that we'll ever understand the isolation and the loneliness that lepers lived with in the first century. It, there, I tried to think of like a reasonable comparison, and there is nothing that comes to mind about how people were shunned, kicked out of their homes, banned from churches, not allowed in anywhere. There's something that is just moving and heart-stirring about Jesus being willing to touch this man. Notice Jesus isn't repulsed by his condition, nor is he even limited by the man's expectations of an if you will. Rather, he reaches out and touches the man, and that same touch is available to us today. Notice, it's not the closed fist of aggression meant to harm that Jesus reaches out to him with. It is not the open-handed slap meant to demean. It's a touch of divine power mediated through divine love. The ESV Study Bible says, Jesus' love, mercy, and power are such that his touch, instead of making Jesus unclean, actually makes the leper clean. As the story of Mark unfolds, we begin to see Jesus preparing not to touch us and not become unclean, but we see Jesus preparing himself to take our sin on himself. We see Jesus preparing to take our sin on himself so that we would not be healed just of a physical issue, but we would be healed and restored to rightful image bearers who are the adopted sons and daughters of God. If we're here tonight and we have trusted in Jesus, then he has indeed touched each of our lives. And instead of our sin making him unclean, he has taken our sin from us and made us clean. And thereby... He has paved the way for the touch for which each redeemed heart longs for. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We are going to experience the most merciful and tender touch when we see Jesus face to face and he takes his thumb and he lays it gently on our cheek and he wipes that last tear away. Let's pray.